Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Normally, this podcast is where we would post the teaching from the previous Sunday's message in our worship service that meets in the Athens Middle School. However, during this particular time in our nation's history, when everyone is doing their part to lessen the threat of the COVID-19 coronavirus, our church is also making sure that every member is physically distancing themselves from one another. And in order to do that, we're setting up Facebook Live church services from my living room, in fact. And what we're doing with this podcast during this time is pulling the audio from the sermons on those Facebook Live messages so that you can still have your weekly podcast feed if you like to listen to those separately. We don't know how long this will last, but as long as it does, we'll keep posting these And we hope that you enjoy them. We hope that you're fed and well-nourished while you're at home. And by all means, please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community, even during a time where it makes it difficult to do that in person. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Centuries, the the church has memorialized today. This is the first day of what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. And the remembrance of this day is that it was Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because of the palm branches and all of the coats and the the clothing that people were spreading out in front of Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey about a week or so before he was executed on the cross. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that a crowd gathered, and there was a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, and they lined the road in front of Jesus, almost like a parade, as he slowly rode in step by step. You can imagine how fast a donkey goes into the into uh, into the city. And as he made his way into the city, a sort of carpet was being pieced together ahead of him with fresh green palm branches. Um, we assume that they were being picked, um, that they had been picked by nearby trees, um, thick clothing and coats, uh, likely from off the backs of the people in the crowd, just sort of formed a, like a red carpet for Jesus as he entered into the city as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And according to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law on that day, this was a problem. But the problem actually wasn't the palm branches or anything like that. The problem was what the people were saying. Luke's gospel tells us that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people were rejoicing and praising God and they were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That was in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, it says. And some of the Pharisees actually tried to get Jesus to make the crowd stop saying that, get them to stop shouting those things, and they asked him to rebuke anyone who was saying it. This whole blessed is the king of Israel nonsense. And the Pharisees actually get it. I want, to, I want to make that clear. The Pharisees actually get it. They understand that this isn't just any phrase that you throw out there. 
This is the kind of phrase that is reserved for one person and one person alone, and that is the Savior of the world, the one who would be the Messiah. The Old Testament scriptures had taught that salvation would come through a person, the Messiah of God, one sent from heaven to rescue his people. And the Psalms predict that day with the exact same song or shout that the crowd was giving in Psalm 118. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so without any doubt, this this rambling crowd in Jerusalem taking its cue from Psalm 118 is declaring in that moment Palm Sunday, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why the Pharisees tell Jesus to stop them. Don't you hear what they're saying? You think They think you're the Messiah. Come to save us. Tell them, Jesus. Tell them to shut up. They can't say that. But here's the fascinating thing, and this is what's going to lead us into today's teaching as we look at Philippians chapter 2 here in a little bit. Jesus doesn't stop them. Instead, he says that if the people were not crying out these things, and if they were not shouting and saying these things about me, then even the rocks themselves would cry out. Even the rocks and the trees and the stones would cry out because this is a great truth. And that's what today is, it's Palm Sunday. And we're here to celebrate that. God, we know that we can only love because you have first loved us. And may that theme and that mindset just ring true in, um, in our entire time today as we live stream this um, service. And as we know, it continues to go out even after it has been, uh, even after it's no longer live. My prayer is that whoever might just happen to come across this and, and tune in or share it with others, that that perhaps more than ever we've been able to do in person, Oasis today would proclaim your love in its purest form as we look at that, as we prepare our hearts for this week leading up to Easter next week. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. I mentioned some things earlier before we started um, singing together about how Palm Sunday really gives us the um, uh, the actual events of what was happening as we read the scripture that we're about to read right now in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. As Paul writes these words, he is looking back. He's looking back at these events that took place and thinking about the the mindset of Christ during this time. So during this this very time, this, this week of of riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then having dinner with his disciples, being, being you know, telling them that so one of us, one among us is going to betray me and one of us is going to, to, to have me uh, turned in arrested. He goes to the garden with some other disciples that he hand chooses to go and pray with him. And as he's being, as he's there praying, he gets arrested. Uh, he goes before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then he goes before Pilate, the Roman uh, governor, and then he, then he, uh, 
is arrested and he's beaten. He's taken out to, to uh, Calvary um, on a hill, as the songwriter wrote in the uh, song, I believe it is, uh, So Will I, um, on a hill that he created, he was crucified. And um, he did not remain in the ground or in the grave. Uh, we know that what we will be celebrating next Sunday in Easter, he raised from death. And that is a lot of events that are taking place in, in one week. And it's just incredible to think about. But I want to read this passage, and, and, I, and I hope that, that you still have that backdrop in mind that I mentioned earlier, where Jesus looked at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he told them, that, look, if the people were not shouting, Hosanna, I am the Messiah, then even the rocks would cry out. That is, that's a backdrop for our passage today. So let's, let's read this together, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there have been many uh, church scholars throughout history who have claimed that this section of verses, uh, verses 5 through 11, hey slugger, (laughs) (laughs) Slugger is here, and he wants to say hi to everybody. There he is. Slugger wants to help preach. Is that good? There are a lot of scholars who believe that maybe this was a... um, (laughs) You ready? All right. That's enough. He wants to play ball now. That believe that maybe this was an ancient hymn. This was one of the first hymns that perhaps the Christians sang together because of the way that it's written uh, and the way that it is uh, uh, kind of looks like like it's in a, on a song stanza type of style in your scripture. We don't know if that's true or not. We don't know if the Christians actually use this as a song, but we can certainly see the potential for that type of use as an expression of love and gratitude and, and worship for what Christ has done. But he says this, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also the, the mind of Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's verse five. And verse five serves as a bridge. So verse five is like a bridge between what we looked at in verse four or verses one through four and verses six through 11 that are to come. And what I mean by that is it's a bridge between what we think and what Christ thinks. What we think, how we think versus how Christ thinks, our mindset versus the mindset of Christ. When he uses this word mind in the Greek, it's phroneo, for mind, and it has to do with our understanding. So your mind, the way you understand things, your worldview, your attitude toward things, your outlook toward things, your entire mindset every single moment of every single day. This is the point that Paul has been moving toward 
in verses one through four. So the verses that we talked about last week, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And he says, that's the mindset I want you to have, but you can't have that mindset unless you have an example of someone who already has that kind of mindset. And he's calling us right now to emulate Jesus Christ, who committed himself wholly to to serving undeserving people at great personal cost. So hear this, without adopting Christ's attitude, we can never accomplish what it is Christ wants us to do. You cannot accomplish what Christ wants you to do with your own natural mindset. It has to be transformed to the mind of Christ. It becomes possible for us to do these things once we have an example. So we have an example of what our mindset should be like, and that example is Jesus. It's what Jesus has done. He has given us a visible, real, human, yes, and fully God, fully man. We're going to talk about that today. He's given us an example right here with skin on that we read about in the scriptures of how we can actually live that way. An example of pure service. He has shown us what that looks like when someone actually puts aside his own self-interest in order to completely and wholeheartedly serve other people. It says, Paul says in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't think that we can try or even hope to fully grasp or understand what all is taking place in those three verses. I mean, there's a there's a ton there. I mean, you could spend all day just meditating on that. My hope is just to highlight a couple of points here in the next few minutes in an effort to keep it simple, but also very real for us today. This is something that Paul is actually saying in other places in his writings. For example, he writes later a letter to Timothy and he calls, he talks about the mystery of godliness about how God was actually, God himself was actually living among the people that he created. God was living in in flesh. He was seen among people in the world, created people. He preached among the nations and you could hear his voice because it came out of what looked like human lips. And so the the first thing I want to point out from this passage is that the scriptures are telling us that Jesus Christ Jesus Christ, the one we know, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked this earth, he gave up the right to his rights. That's an important phrase. It's an important, the way I said it is is important to note. He gave up the right to his rights. He did not give up his rights. He couldn't do that any more so than you could give up your right to be human. I mean, you have a right to be human. That's who you are. You can't give it up. You're human. Whether you want to be or not, you're human. Jesus is God. He couldn't give up that right. But what he did was he gave up the right to enjoy those rights. And for a time, he came to the world that he created. 
So the rights that we're talking about, Paul says, are the fact that Jesus, the rights that we're talking about is, is the fact that Jesus existed in the form of God and was equal with God. That means Jesus, Jesus Christ exists in the exact form of God. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Jesus, we claim, proclaim, demonstrate in the world. We worship Jesus as God. Paul is saying here that Jesus, now this is happening in the first century. Paul is saying that Jesus was the expression from all eternity of the fullness of God's nature, whatever that is, whatever the fullness of his nature is. We, don't, we, we, we haven't fully seen him. Jesus always existed in that form, and therefore he was equal with God. You remember how um, John, in John's gospel, he begins his gospel. This is the apostle John who wrote one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He begins it by talking about Jesus. And what's he say about Jesus? He says, in the beginning was the word. He calls Jesus the word, the logos. And the word was with God. The word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. I don't know who could possibly read that statement and question it as a statement of the fullness of the deity of Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul says this. He says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever that was, we're not sure who it was, but it begins with this really phenomenal expression. It says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. I mean, you, you've seen, basically what Hebrews is saying is, is you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. It's like, it's like if I held up a quarter, right? If I held up a quarter and I said, I said, what is this? You would know that's a quarter. How do you know? Because you know what a quarter looks like. You've held a quarter in your hand. It's the exact, well, it's not that quarter, but it is. It's a quarter. It's, it's the exact representation of what a quarter is. You know it because you see it. Paul said, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, says, you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. He's the exact representation, the exact imprint of his nature. And here's the phenomenal thing. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. So what holds us together? I mean, while we sit here this morning or wherever it is you're sitting or standing or laying or walking, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you might be, what's holding you together? Is it your bones, your skin? I mean, that helps. <laughs> I mean, but, but what is it that holds our skin together? What's holding, what's holding this together? I mean, what, what holds all the atoms together and, the, and that strange, mysterious power at the base of all matter that counteracts with, what is it called? Here we're getting scientific now, centrifugal, centrifugal action that causes electrons and protons to just somehow stay together? What, what holds it all together? The writer of Hebrews says, we know the answer to this. The writer of Hebrews says, it is Christ. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And Paul agrees with this in Colossians. He says, this is Colossians chapter one, if you'd like to read this chapter today. He is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together.
You know, one time Paul was speaking to the Athenians on uh, Mars Hill, the intellectual capital of the ancient world in Greece. And this is in, you can read this in Acts chapter 17. And he said to them, in him, we live and move and have our being. In him, we live and we move and we have our very being. Who is that that he's talking about? Who is he talking to there? He wasn't talking to Christians. He was talking to everyone. That's every single person without exception. In him, you live and you move and you have your being because he is upholding all things, including you, by the word of his power. All of these references together agree that in Jesus Christ, there was the fullness of all that God is fully made clear, fully made visible from all eternity, and those were his rights that Paul's talking about in Philippians 2. That was the rights that he set aside for a time, the enjoyment of those rights. Having all of this, all of this that we've just talked about, Philippians chapter 2 says he did not count all of these things He did not count all of these things as something to be held on to when he came into the world, but he emptied himself. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The next point, the second point I guess I want to make is this. When you read the gospel accounts of the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ, I think that it's easy to see that the cross was really avoidable if Jesus had chosen to avoid it. I mean, think about this. I mean, read, read, just read the Gospels this week. Right? Read, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then ask yourself, could Jesus have avoided the cross? I say without a doubt. But he deliberately insisted upon it. I mean, it's almost like he, he designed his life for those, for those years when he was teaching right to the end, going to the cross, not as plan B, but as plan A. It wasn't because something went wrong and he got crucified. It was actually plan A. It was intentional. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Judas had slipped out of their Last Supper under the darkness of night and tried to arrange his arrest, the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus went out with other disciples in the garden to pray and wait. Basically, he was waiting for the coming of the guards. They were going to come and arrest him. He could have slipped away. I mean, couldn't he have slipped away? He had done it before. I mean, there were times when Jesus was teaching in crowds and people tried to come and capture him to stone him to death or whatever, and he just disappeared, slipped away. So we know he could have done it. I mean, he was pretty elusive. He could have done it. There was probably a good bit of time before the guards had arrived and you know, while they were praying, and really, Bethany was just over the hill. That Bethany was where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, good friends, were waiting for him. I mean, he could have easily just slipped right around the corner, over the hill, across the Jordan River, into Jericho safely, but he didn't. He deliberately waited until the guards came to get him and arrest him. He knew they were on their way, and yet he stayed there. And then when he stood before the high priest, Caiaphas, and he was being charged by the high priest as to whether or not he was the son of God, 
People are telling, people are shouting, you're the Messiah. They say you're the Messiah. Are you the son of God or not? Now, legally, Jesus had every right to remain silent. Jewish law said that an accused person had every right to, to stay silent if you had an accusation brought against you before the high priest, that you didn't have to defend yourself uh, if in, in, if in, because anything you say could incriminate you. You have the right to remain silent. But he didn't remain silent. He actually opened up his mouth and he answered them. And he said, he said something like this. He said uh, that, uh, I tell you the truth, you, you say that they're saying I'm the Messiah. I tell you the truth, you're gonna see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. And this caused the high priest to say, whoa, 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 we don't need any further more, we don't need any more witnesses. Out of his own mouth he has testified, he's blasphemed, he's sealed his own doom by speaking up. He could have avoided that. He didn't have to say anything. So then they bring him before Pilate, the Roman governor, and before Pilate, he had every right to speak up and provide his own defense. Roman law said that an accused person had the right to answer whatever charges were brought before you. Like if someone, if someone accused you of something and they were bringing a charge against you, you could defend yourself, much like we do in a court of law today. But before Pilate, Jesus refused to answer the charges that Pilate was making, and he just remained silent there. As Pilate asked his questions, Jesus didn't say anything, and he left Pilate with, with no alternative. He, he, he gave Pilate nothing to find a way to release him. I mean, Pilate actually was wanting to release Jesus. Pilate desperately tried to find a way to release him, short of putting his own political career on the line. So as you read these accounts, it's obvious that what Paul writes about Jesus is literally true. He became obedient to death. He became obedient to the point of death. He did not have to die, but he deliberately chose to die. And that leaves us, to, in conclusion, to ask a question. It leads me to the question, why? Why? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus design, why does it appear that he designed his life intentionally to lead him to the cross, to die on a cross? Again, throughout the centuries, there have been a lot of in-depth theological explanations and theories and attempts to answer that question. Why would Jesus arrange his death to the point of deliberately allowing himself to be arrested, tried, executed on a Roman cross? There are lots of different, I mean, just a lot of different theories. And some of them maybe have hints of truth to them. Some of them may be ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's one of the major questions of the theological world. But I'm not gonna get into all that. I'm about to conclude. And I'm gonna say this. I'm convinced we don't need any such complicated explanations for the cross of Christ. There's an old Scottishman who once put it like this. He said, some things, I, don't, I can't speak Scottish, but I'll try. Some things are things which are better felt than telt or told. <laughs> I think that's profound. I, and I think that in, in light of such, the, of such profound significance of something like the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, often the heart can often come closer to the real meaning than the head has the ability to. 
I think it was Blaise Pascal that said something like the heart has reasons that reasons know not of something like that, 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 that look that up. Heart, the heart has reasons that reason, that reason knows not of. And there was more to it. I wish I could remember the rest of it. But here's the, here's the thing. I, I think in the Bible, John, John the Apostle gives us the clearest answer to the question, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus deliberately have his life lead to the cross? John says in the book of Revelation, and I think this is the answer to why Jesus insisted on dying. When he wrote in the opening of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he said, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Christ died, in other words, because he loves us, because he loved humankind. Did you, did you find it? Yeah. The Blaise Pascal quote? Let's see it. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. We know the truth, not only by the reason, but by the heart. And it was Blaise Pascal. Thank you, Allie. That's why, that's why he died. We just sang about it. How great, how great, how great is your love for us. And there's never been, and there will never be another example of love like that. He loved humankind and he longed to set humankind free, John says. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He loves you to the point of wanting to set you free from the bondage of sin. There's no other adequate explanation for the cross of Christ than that one thing. Christ loved us and he longed to set us free. Christ loves you. So if this is case, then evidently this means that we need to be set free. Every single one of us needs to be set free from what? From our nature of sin. We need to be saved from that. And Christ is the only one who is qualified to do it. He's the only one who's qualified to do what needs to be done. And that's why the Christians sing of the cross. We sing of the beautiful, wonderful cross where the king of all glory laid down his life for us. And we're gonna sing that here in just a minute. I wanna pray and then we'll sing that together. Let's pray. Lord, if there's anyone listening right now and they've been looking for some way delivered from some unhealthy habit, some blinding problem, some overwhelming difficulty in their life, if they've been looking for some way to fill the void of emptiness or meaninglessness of life, if anybody who's watching this live stream now, God, are hoping to find answers of some sort, I pray that they would come to the cross of Christ and find the strength that they need today and tomorrow and forever. God, I thank you that those words are true. They are so true. And that watching this live stream right now, perhaps there are dozens, perhaps even eventually maybe hundreds of men and women who can say, I came to that cross and I find this to be true. 
I find that the principle is always still true in those moments where I try to meet life circumstances on my own and I fail, but I come back again and again and again to the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I come to the one who stands right there ready for me to give me all of his strength for all of my need, I find that I can stand, I can rise up. I can withstand the grief and the heartache and the suffering and the pain that life brings and throws at me. And I can stand it because of the strength of Jesus Christ who was crucified for me. We thank you, God, for this wonderful reality. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.